My mother has been known to introduce, to say at parties that her daughter is a doctor. And I asked her once why she didn't say that I work for the church. And she said, well, honestly, darling, it's just a bit embarrassing. <laughs> so never mind. But um, about a month ago, also, I started, was starting to think about this session and what I was going to say. And I was on the train going to a meeting down in London. And um, I was, had my notes, notebook out and I was just jotting some notes down. And I became aware that the woman next to me and the guy opposite were looking a bit perturbed. And it was only at that moment that I realized what I'd done was written in big letters on the top of my pad. Why am I so unhappy? (laughs) Question mark. So anyway, this is not about my emotional health, you'll be glad to hear. What I want to talk about today is really just a little bit about what's going on for teenagers, adolescents, young people in today's culture, some of the challenges that ordinary adolescence brings to them and some of the stuff that I believe and some other guys believe is related to some of the problems that they are having. Um, And the reason for it, I'm just going to run through some statistics. Um, Rob has shared some of these already. Um, But the reason is, is that emotional mental health problems are incredibly common. So a study done in 2005 said that one in 10 children and young people aged over five, between five and 16, suffer from some kind of diagnosable mental health problem. So if you're thinking averages, that's about three kids in each class. So that's a bit of a, my daughter is uh, just year one at school, and it's a bit of a wake-up call to think that in her class already, then probably about three kids who are going to be struggling with some kind of emotional mental health problem. Um, We know statistics on things like self-harm. Every 30 minutes, a teenager somewhere in this country cuts, burns, or scolds themselves. We know that around a quarter of teenage girls, if you ask them, would say that they have an eating disorder. Uh, We know that, again, more than one in four uh, teenagers would say that they frequently feel depressed, feel sad. These things are tremendously common. Alcohol consumption is another one that's a big issue. And the rate of alcohol consumption in young people has more than doubled in the last 10 years, studies would say to us. We know that a record number of teenagers and young people are now seeking help for drug and alcohol dependencies. Unfortunately, Rob Will and myself and the guys working in this field, any of you who do, we find ourselves in a boom area. And we'd really rather it wasn't. I would rather be out of a job. We know, as Rob has already said, that some, ki- some young people in particular, those in care, those in um, young offenders institutions, are particularly likely to struggle. Nearly half of um, children in the care system struggling with some kind of emotional or mental health problem. We know that these issues are serious. They do go on to have serious effects. About 4% of all suicides in a recent seven-year period were teenagers. So these are issues that can genuinely lead to serious end-of-life problems. I read a a study recently, which I I believe was quoted in the Daily Mail, so my father says, because he's reached that age of life where what he does is cut out bits of the Daily Mail and post them to me. (laughs) But I read the actual study, but was saying that if you look at the the impact that eating disorders have on young children, we're actually at a stage now where the mortality, that is the amount of illness and even loss of life it causes, is similar to some types of leukaemia. That's how serious this stuff is. We know as well that teenagers who struggle with depression are four times more likely to have problems in their 20s or 30s. And for me, as a psychologist working sometimes with adults, I would much prefer to treat those people when they are in primary school or secondary school. And one of the things that I do with my church is we run a mentoring team who go into all of our local primary schools, our local secondary schools, and work one-to-one with kids. The idea being, and we're fantastically lucky to have a great team of people in our local authority who work with us, but 
the idea being that hopefully if we pick these things up early, we can stop them going on and causing longer-term problems. We know that only 14% of teenagers who actually committed suicide were in touch with local mental health services. So that's why you guys are so important. And to be honest, the biggest uh, part of my job in the schools is helping people to engage with local, men local mental health services. They don't want to. Uh, there's a massive stigma about going to CAMS, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. So a lot of people are looking for support somewhere else. And what I want to ask is a question of whether mental health problems are actually more common now. We know that teenagers have a lot of problems, but are they? Is there evidence that they are more common? We keep saying they are. Is there evidence? And yes, there is. Uh, the Princess Trust did a study which showed that emotional health in young people has declined significantly to the lowest rate it's ever been in, in, the three, in three years. So there is some evidence that things are getting worse. This is a quote from Marjorie Wallace from SANE. And she says, we're getting clear evidence that the onset of depression is happening earlier and earlier. This is what Rob's talking about, which concerns me very much as well, that we are seeing younger and younger children starting to struggle with these problems. Um, this is a, a quote from a study that was looking at the rate of emotional problems in different periods, different decades, said that there is evidence for substantial increases in the rates of emotional problems in teenagers and young people since the 1980s. So something about the current generation, the current culture is causing, these, is causing more problems. So why? That's the big question that I want to look at in this seminar. And I apologise straight away, we've only got, you know... 50 minutes or so, so we've got some time for some questions at the end. So I apologise for if I make some sweeping comments or generalise some things, but I want to look at two things. And the first of them is, what is it that's going on for teenagers, young people, adolescents that makes them so prone to having problems with their emotions? So I want to look at normal, healthy adolescents and look at what it is that is, what's going on then that makes people so vulnerable. And then in the second half, I want to look at the question of, what is it that we're doing in our culture? What is it that's making teenagers now so much more prone to problems than they perhaps were 15, 20 years ago? Okay, so if you want to bung the next picture, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is your average teenager. <laughs> if anybody has children, my daughter's never going to be a teenager, but unfortunately she's six. She, she's coming up to six, she quite often acts like one already. So this is, uh, this is the Incredible Hulk, and the reason I put, want to put this image up is to get the message across that really adolescence is, at, at the foremost, it's a time of change, of dramatic transformation. And Rob and Will, they've touched on this already, that the changes going on for adolescents in terms of their brains, physical changes, emotional changes, are as great as the stuff that's going on when they're much, much younger. So adolescents, if you just flick back to the, to the previous slide, sorry, poor old Audrey over there's got a real task because she has to keep up with me with my slides, which is a bit tricky. Adolescence is a time of transforming from a child into an adult, and it is a time of transforming. It does not happen overnight. So if I got my little girl up here, she's five, she's quite tall for her age, she's, she's a little bit mouthy, she says she wants to be a church leader, so I'll be praying about that. She used to want to be a princess, so I suppose it's an improvement on her um, career aims. But if I put her up here, uh, we would not expect her to act in the same way that we would expect an adult to act. We would all make some allowances for the fact that she is only five. She responds to certain situations in certain ways which aren't always that positive, And we would expect that because she's only a child. And yet, if I brought a 14, 15-year-old up, and we have some amazing young leaders, emerging leaders in our church... 
What I'm constantly saying to the teams of people who work with them is that you have to remember that that person too is still becoming an adult. And it's so easy, isn't it, to look at a 14, 15-year-old and just assume that they are adult in the way that they think. But they are not. Adolescence is a time of change and they are on a journey of becoming an adult. Um, And, you know, some of us would say that we are still on that journey. It isn't something that happens overnight. You don't wake up one day. I think I used to think that I would wake up one day suddenly all wise an adult and well it hasn't happened yet if anybody's had that experience then do do come and encourage me but this is a time of transformation so let's just think about what it is that's changing so now if we move on to the physical changes they're the most obvious thing aren't they if we talk about what is adolescence what people will immediately start talking about is puberty um, and the dramatic music starts in the background. And so we know that these physical changes can be very dramatic. Uh, some of the stuff that girls and boys go through at different stages through puberty, they are physically transforming. And one of the interesting things about puberty is how it's getting earlier and earlier. And there's lots and lots of debate amongst the research as to why this is happening. Some people say it's better nutrition, things like that. But what we now know is that puberty can often start in children as young as eight. So we're talking about physical changes starting to happen in children as young as eight. And that wouldn't really be seen as premature. Um, That would be seen as within the normal range. Once they've started, these changes last about three to six years. But they can start as late as 16, 17. So there's a massive range as to when the physical changes start. And what it's important to remember is that the hormonal changes that, that trigger the physical changes, they precede it by a couple of years. So Pete, if you're saying to me, you know, my seven-year-old, my eight-year-old, even my six-year-old sometimes, particularly girls, seems to be a bit hormonal. It's almost like she has mood swings. That is possible. I don't like to scare you, but that is possible because puberty and some of the changes that, that, that trigger it do start surprisingly early. So physical changes are the first thing. Let's look, I want to spend a bit more time thinking about the changes that we might often forget about though, which is the emotional, the cognitive changes, which are going on at the same time. Sometimes they tend to start a little bit later than the physical changes, so they sort of follow on once the puberty has started to kick off. And what this is all about is basically learning adult thinking. So this is the the, the change of the young child brain to become the adult brain. And it's particularly about the development of a part of the brain at the front here called the frontal lobes. And what the frontal lobes do, if we can stick the the text up, that would be great, um, is they particularly are involved in controlling and inhibiting behaviour. So what you learn as a teenager is something about the sort of fine-tuning of the way that you respond to the world around you. So whether that's emotional stuff, whether it's motivational stuff, what gets you out of bed in the morning. Teenagers sometimes don't get out of bed in the morning. That's because they are learning some of that control. So inhibiting and controlling behavior is probably not a teenager's strongest point, which is why if we see the next slide, this is your typical image of the teenager, is them going off on one, they're frustrated in a lot of ways, like the toddlers who are also, also struggle with this inhibition and dealing with their emotions. So there are a variety of things that are going on in teenagers' brains, and these are genuine, real changes. We can measure them now with um, the likes of PET scans, of all of the new technology we have. We can see that the the teenage brains are actually developing and changing. So this isn't just, oh, they need to get a grip and sort it out. This is genuinely their brain needs time to form those new links and begin to develop some of their adult structures. 
So what are those changes? Number one, the first change, next slide now, is that their thinking needs to become less egocentric. Okay, so children, if we pick the next slide up again, children, this is an image of how they see the world, okay? The world genuinely does revolve around them. Yeah, I know that we all know some adults like that too. But this is kids. They, the way that their brains work, they are not very good at or even they're not capable of seeing the world from someone else's point of view. This is one of the reasons why children, if they have tra- trauma happen to them or if something difficult happens in their lives, they almost always assume it was their fault because in their world, everything is to do with them. So my daughter used to think that when she was on a train and we went through a tunnel, we used to tease her and get her to blink as we went in, and she genuinely thought she could switch all the lights off in the world by blinking. And she doesn't think that anymore because she's not that stupid. She is five now. But that's an image of just how powerful children believe they are. And as teenagers start to come out of that haze, what, what it changes is they suddenly become aware of all these other perspectives around them. You know, gosh, all these people in this room have an opinion about me. I never thought about this before. So they can sometimes struggle with feeling quite paranoid, quite overwhelmed by what other people think of them. And that's to do with the changes in the way that they perceive the world. Number two, another big change that's going on emotionally is that the complex emotions in their brain are starting to develop. So if we just uh, flick up the next slide, this is a a series of little measures that I use when I'm working with young people to help them talk about their emotions. So if this graph, if you imagine this is a graph of your emotions, so at the top of the scale we've got plus 10, at the bottom we've got minus 10, naught is the kind of neutral thing. So moving on to the next image, if you um, ask people what what their emotions are like on an average day, then most sort of healthy adults will talk about emotions that are roughly within this range. So down to about minus one, because we all have moments like that, but basically fairly positive. So the range is somewhere around minus one to three-ish. Then moving on to the next one, of course, there's a couple of less, uh, there's a more uncomfortable side of this scale, which is at the very bottom. This is what I call the swamp zone. This is where if you're struggling with negative emotions, you might find that you sometimes get stuck. So this is if you're feeling sad or unhappy or stressed out or anxious. Up at the top on the next slide, you can see the happy zone. Hooray! This is where you are when you are feeling positive or happy or excited or generally just psyched with life. Everything's going really well. So on the next slide, you'll see what I would get if I asked most adults to do a trace of their emotions. So it's, it's a bit up and down, you know. On a Monday, it's probably worse than on a Friday evening, that sort of thing, usual kind of thing, roughly within that zone. This next slide is what you'll see if you ask a normal teenager. So what we see in normal adolescence is emotions that are more extreme, they change more quickly, and they tend to hit the high and low points much more often than we do as adults. So good news for, uh, for you if you are working with young people struggling with emotions like this is that on the whole, as they get older, it will get better. That's just the way it works. The bad news is, of course, as adults, we have, I mean, the good news is we have fewer of the real lows, but we also, it's harder to get us to the real highs, isn't it? And, you know, if you look at the teenagers, they're coming to, a, to an event or just having a really awesome time. They, they do find it easier to hit the highs, just like they find it easier to hit the lows. Now, this is why, if you put the next slide up, this is how some teenagers feel. They feel like they are going completely, totally and utterly nuts. They think someone is going to come and take them away. Very often, the young people I work with, this is their biggest terror. Oh, my goodness, if they ever dare to speak to a psychologist, I am obviously going to just 
have them carried off by those nice little men in the white coats. Actually, that, that has never, ever happened to me. But teenagers' emotions can feel that out of control, that scary, that frustrating. Another interesting thing about teenagers, if we put the next image up, and those of you who work particularly with teenagers or if you've got teenagers yourself, research shows that one of the things that teenagers are not very good at is recognising the early warning signs of emotion in things like people's faces, their body language. So as an adult, I can tell reasonably well what somebody is thinking or feeling. I have a little bit of intuition in terms of how their emotions go. So if you're bored by this talk, I can probably tell. <laughs> if, you, if I'm really making you mad, I could probably tell. Teenagers are really lousy at that, and that's why, as adults, we sometimes find them so frustrating, because it feels like they're just winding you up and up and up. The reality is, when you finally snap and lose it, that may have been the first time that they realised you were even mildly cross. So it's worth remembering that. I often find myself saying things to, to the young people in our church, things like, I am getting a bit cross. And I do sound a little bit like the Terminator, but the reason I'm doing it is because I know that they might not be as aware of that as I am. It's also the reason why you have to be so careful about things like relationships where there's a big age gap, because younger teenagers perceive emotional, the whole emotional world just differently to the older ones. So it can be an issue, and it's an interesting one to be aware of. Okay, number three in terms of brain development, what's going on for teenagers? And this is a biggie. Uh, Will has already talked lots about identity and, and the sort of security and where that comes from. And adolescence is the time when your adult identity is forming in a very real sort of concrete way in your brain. That concept of knowing who you are, knowing what you like, knowing the way that you respond to certain things and generally being okay with that, that's something that develops during adolescence. So what you'll see in adolescence is that they will spend, have times and periods where they literally try out new identities. They're trying to get a feel. They don't know who they are and they're trying to get a feel for who they might be. What sort of person do they want to be? How do they want to see the world? So if we look at the next image, you know, teenagers are very, very vulnerable and prone to anything that gives them a strong identity, whether that's how they dress, whether that's the music that they listen to, anything that gives them a message about who they are or that enables them to give out a message about who they are. It also means that sometimes teenagers behave completely differently on what from one day to the next. That's completely normal. They are trying out who they are. It is normal to have a degree of identity crisis as a teenager. That's what I would expect to see. Okay, number four in terms of what's going on for teenagers is that there are other frontal lobe functions that are quite slow to develop. And one particularly classic one is the ability to link something that happens now with an impact or an outcome that happens further down the line. And teenagers are really, really rubbish at this. Some adults haven't even got it, got it sussed. But so in particular, they're vulnerable to things like that. They struggle with, with a lot of the sensible adult stuff, like if you don't study now, you'll probably fail your maths test in a week. They struggle with that. They find it very difficult to apply what they're doing now to something that's going to happen further down the line. So things like planning their behavior, motivational stuff, is difficult for them. It also means that they are quite bad at predicting bad outcomes. And part of your, their job as a teenager is to make some mistakes and start to get better at this, but hopefully not too big ones. 
So um, teenagers don't have the ability to think ahead sensibly. They don't know that when they go out with their mates and buy a few bottles of cider or vodka, that this is going to be the end of their evening. It just doesn't really occur to them. They don't think about it. Again, some adults still struggle with this one. They don't know that this might be the end of their evening. The next slide. They haven't thought it through. How often have you said to a teenager, what were you thinking? The reality is is they don't really think like that sometimes. They just don't think it through. They don't realize, for example, that the, that the, that the things that they do with the boyfriends and the sex and all of the stuff might lead to a situation like this. They don't think about it. Sex and the problems with teenage pregnancy is a real classic one. How do you link the fun that you have with a guy after the bottle of cider um, with the fact that, that a month or so later you, you start to find something else is changing within you? So it's a classic example of one of the things that teenagers struggle with. So what we've learned from that section is that there are a whole set of genuine changes going on in the brains of teenagers and that those things can lead them to somehow, sometimes behave in ways that are not adult. So my father is, is famed for once saying to my brother and I when we were little, you know, stop behaving like children, which my mother finds very amusing. But we do this to teenagers all the time, don't we? And we assume that they can act and think in an adult way. And actually, genuinely, some of them will struggle with that. They need our support to help them to develop some of those adult skills. At the same time, there's another bunch of stuff going on for teenagers, which is the sort of psychosocial changes. So there's, the teenage world is one where everything is changing. So they have to develop independence from their parents, both psychologically in the way that Will was talking about, but also just practically. They have to get better at doing some things for themselves. They have to learn how to get themselves out of bed in the morning, which is a challenge. I used to work in the university, and when the exam results came in, it's amazing the number of students who would pitch up at my door saying that their alarm clock didn't go off, and that's why they'd failed their exam. So this is a problem. It takes time. Sometimes they, they get it wrong in two classic ways, independence. Either they, they are just bad at it and they struggle and they sometimes um, even struggle with things, that, with things like feeling really homesick, quite clingy. Um, that's, that's quite normal teenage, teenage behavior. Sometimes, of course, they go the other way and they just never want anything to do with you as a parent ever, ever again. And that, again, is normal and swings between those two as part of normal adolescence. The second thing, of course, that they have to do is to develop a mature sexuality. This is something that develops throughout adolescence. So what happens when a child, and I say child deliberately, of 12 or 13 is starting to become sexually active is that they are trying to get an idea of their adult sexuality and behave as adult sexual people when actually their brains have not caught up with them. Why is this an issue? There are lots of things that, that make that very complicated for them. Things like the fact that at that age, it's quite common to have, a, a, to have same-sex attractions because of the emotional power of your friendships at that stage, which a lot of, of young children and young teenagers find absolutely traumatic and terrifying. And they wonder, what does this mean for their sexuality? It just makes it more complicated, doesn't it? You know, when sexuality was just about, my daughter is still of an age, thank goodness, where, you know, she just believes that at some point you just get married and then have babies, and she's not really sure why or how, which I hope carries on for a long time. (laughs) But it's more complicated now, isn't it? There's, There's more options. 
There's more tick boxes. I had to fill out a form the other day and for, for, um, sort of, um, to, to make sure that they were being fair on all their criteria. There was a section where you had to describe your sexuality. I was overcome by the number of options. It took me quite a while to decide, and I've been married 10 years. So for our teenagers, that's, really, that's quite alarming. I've talked about how they're developing an adult sense of identity, and a bit later on we'll talk about how bombarded they are with messages that talk about their identity and where they should get their worth from and what they should look like and act like and be like and feel like. And then the last one, of course, is they have to start developing realistic career goals. My husband's in his mid-30s and he still doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. You know, so to ask a 14-year-old what they want to do with their life is, is a difficult one. So there are these four changes going on, these sort of psychosocial changes as well, which make teenagers quite vulnerable. Teenage life genuinely is quite stressful. How many of you, if you had the chance again, would be a teenager again? How many of you, if you had the chance, would be like 24 again? Some of you still are, I know. Just don't don't go there. But yeah, you see, teenage, it's great. We all want to be younger. Well, unless you still are young. (laughs) But none of us want to be teenagers again. Why? Because it's difficult. That old thing about it being the, your school days being the best years of your life. Oh, my goodness. I don't know who said that, but we need to take them off somewhere and just quietly shoot them. <laughs> Even now, teenagers still say this to me. They say, but, but this is supposed to be the best years of my life, so you know, I'm in real trouble because I'm really miserable. And I say, no, honestly, the best years of your life are still to come. Don't worry. Life just gets better as you get older because you realize that you're not going to get much better and it all just, you relax a bit more. So, <laughs> well, that's just my opinion anyway. What does all of this mean? This is the question. Ten things that it means we can expect about our normal, healthy adolescence. So, this is an encouragement to you if you are a parent of adolescents. Number one, adolescents often feel very out of control. And they are often freaked out by this. Their emotions are all over the place. Their hormones all over the place, particularly for the girls, but for the guys as well. Physical changes may be all over the place. I am reliably informed that for a guy, this is a big issue. Things happening to your body without which you would rather not be happening at the time which they're happening. Apparently, that's a big difficulty for the guys. So feeling very out of control is a part of normal adolescence. Number two, different young people may be at completely different stages of development at the same age. We had a thing not so long ago in our church where we got all the young people from one year group out because they were going on a trip. And there there was kids from this high up to one poor lad who was like over six foot. The same age group, completely different stages of development. So that is physically where it's obvious. But also emotionally, you may get one young person who is emotionally much more mature than the other kids in their year. And that's very difficult. If you're the kid who's more mature, whether that's emotionally or physically, that is a tough place to be. In general, in adolescence, it's very hard if you feel different in any way. And if you are the kid who develops very early or very late, that 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 can be very difficult. Number three, adolescent emotions can be more powerful, less predictable, and less stable. That's normal. It is normal for your emotional world to suddenly feel like it's in chaos. And number four, perhaps as a result, adolescents are more prone to things like substance misuse and other 
things that they think are going to help them cope with their emotions. One of the challenges of normal adolescence is to learn how to handle your emotions. So they are much more vulnerable to messages that say, hey, do this and you'll feel better. So drugs, alcohol, all kinds of things, self-harm, they are more prone to messages because they have no idea how to deal with their emotions. There is some evidence, too, that their brains are more reactive to some of the, the sort of chemical compounds in dr some drugs and alcohol and things like this. So they, the, it, the sort of neurological impact is stronger for them. So it feels like it's, like it's going to help more, when in fact, as we all know, these things actually make things worse, not better. Number five, as I've said, a normal adolescent can be completely different one day to the next. So that young person in your church group who is usually so sensible and calm, and then you, <laughs> this has happened to me recently, then you put them on stage and ask them to give a notice, and they go absolutely nuts. Normal adolescent behavior, I, you can't complain about that from someone who's 14, that, that's normal. Number six, adolescents are a lot more influenced by the media. Very important one in, in our day and age. And where people talk about questions like, are media images linked to, say, eating disorders or all kinds of other things? All of the research shows that the people who are most influenced are the adolescents, the young people. By the time you get to adulthood, you kind of know that you're probably not that likely to ever look like that. But as an adolescent, you still hope that maybe you could if you just worked harder. You, you're much more vulnerable to the message that says you should. Number seven, during adolescence, friendships become incredibly important. That's a lot to do with this coming out of this egocentric haze. You, if you like, your friends reflect back who you are. So it's very important how you get on with them. It's also because adolescence is about trying out adult relationships. You know, those early romances are all part of, of trying out what will become adult longer-term relationships, hopefully. So friendships are very, very powerful. If you are the kid who, by bad luck or circumstance, is the one who's picked on or bullied or not liked, that's very, very difficult as an adolescent. It's not great as an adult, is it? Let's face it. But as an adolescent, when you don't even know who you are, if the message you're getting off everyone is that actually you're a bit of a waste of space, that's powerful. Number eight, linked with this thing of friendships, because of this new understanding of emotions that adolescents have, they can become quite emotionally devious, quite manipulative, actually, particularly the girls who, let's face it, are always... I mean, I, my five-year-old and her friends, it just it blows my mind how emotionally devious they are already. Um, I, I think that's just natural to girls, sorry, but I think it must be. But certainly they can be like that because they're just using the skills that they have and they've suddenly discovered that they have these skills. The other thing about the development of their emotional awareness is that adults who previously seemed perfect, as they become more aware of some of these little subtleties, can suddenly just look flawed. And, you know, they thought you were amazing. But actually, it turns out you're just human and that's so disappointing I had a, a discussion with my daughter the other day where I was trying to encourage her and I was saying, look, you know, none of us are perfect. Every, you know, you can't try and push yourself to be perfect because no one's perfect. She said, but mommy, you are. And I thought, well, I know, I know. <laughs> and my immediate thought was, I feel so sorry for you because one day you're going to realize that I'm just not. <laughs> and often adolescents come out and parents in particular, they're so disillusioned. It turns out we're all just making it up. Day after day, we don't know what we're doing at all. 
And so they can be quite devastated by that. And as leaders, sometimes you, you plummet in their estimation suddenly. Normal adolescence. Number nine, adolescents are prone to risk-taking behavior. We've talked about this because they cannot link what they do now with the outcome. So they do do some stupid things sometimes. And that's normal adolescence. They should get better at it. But number 10, just to warn you, brain, this, all this brain development, actually there's new research coming out every year that shows that it actually continues well into our 20s. And particularly this thing of linking cause now and effect later on, there is good evidence that shows that even university students, so we're talking late teens, early 20s, are not as good at that as sort of 30-year-olds. So there are some advantages to growing old, it turns out. So we have to remember this. Some of our young leaders, maybe, would still be in this category where actually, in terms of their brain, they're still developing. So, if you just put the next slide up. This, remember, what I've talked about is normal adolescent development. And if you like, there's a question of what is normal, because actually it's quite normal to struggle. Those of you who are parents, if you, I often get parents come up to me at the end of conferences where I'm talking on this topic, and they say, my teenager is a nightmare. They are grumpy, argumentative. They cannot get themselves out of bed. They can't plan anything. Their room's an absolute tip. They're getting into trouble left, right, and center. They shout at me. They swear at me. And do you know what I say? Fantastic. Because it's completely normal. I am much more concerned about some of the teenagers I see who are quiet, withdrawn, never argue, never say anything. That worries me a lot more. So if your teenager is hideous, that's good news. <laughs> I may not be saying that when mine is a teenager. And this is, if we put the next slide up, Rob Parsons tells the story of talking to a psychologist about adolescence. And um, this is what I want to go on to spend the sort of second half of this session thinking about. And this psychologist said to Rob Parsons that what you have to remember is that adolescence is a bit like going down a corridor. And all along the corridor, there are doors on your left and right. And they say things like drugs, alcohol, sex. And he said, 10 years ago, most of those doors were locked. Every once in a while, you'd hear of somebody who'd gone through one of those doors, but it, it was rare. Now, this guy said to Rob Parsons, it is like all of those doors are wide open. Sometimes there's people in there saying, hey, come on in. This is great. So what I want to look at now is what are some of the things that have changed and are changing in our culture? And I'm going to try and do this without ranting for too long because it is something I feel really passionate about, particularly as someone with a, with, with a child, you know, of the world that our kids are now growing up in. And the first one I'm actually not going to spend that long on because it just, I think we all know what I'm talking about is just stress. And, you know, this image here of exams. You know, my daughter the other day was in tears over a spelling test. She's five, for goodness sake. I don't care if she can spell discovering or not. She's only five. But this is going to be her life in school, particularly because she's a bright kid and the school need her to get the, the scores that make them look good, you know. And I love my daughter's school. It's a good school. But this is the pressure that's on our kids. This is the culture we live in. And, you know, when I used to work with teenagers 10 years ago, at least in the lower sixth year, you got a kind of year off where they didn't have exams that counted. Now there is no break and I was talking to a girl um, struggling with anxiety the other day, and she just said, it's just like, I can't breathe. And I, if there's no time for me to stop and catch my breath. And I thought, yeah, I know what you mean. The pressure on young people today is absolutely phenomenal. 
The second thing that I do want to talk a bit more about is, is something about just the increased awareness that our young people have and this increased access, as, this, uh, as Rob Parsons says, the fact that some of these things are just so much more accessible. And I want to give you an example of talking about self-harm just, just to sort of illustrate this. And did you know that the most common factor which influences the likelihood of someone starting to self-harm is whether they know someone else who self-harms? Obviously, I'm not saying that's the only thing that causes self-harm. You know, the, the, the seminars on that have been fantastic, it's a, and it is a complex thing. But what we do know about it is that knowing other people who do it is, is quite instrumental in its spreading and developing. Many people who self-harm, if you ask them about when they started, they will talk about having read about it or heard about it. Some of them even will say things like, I decided to give it a go. Increasingly now, that's what I hear young people say. Or, you know, I knew loads of people who, who, did, who did this. And what they usually say is, and it made them feel loads better. So they are literally learning it as a way of coping with their emotions. At the same time, rates of self-harm have risen by a third over the last 10 years. And the question is, how much of this has been fueled by things like media awareness? So there was, in particular, a phase where you couldn't buy a teenage magazine without them talking about self-harm. And there's good sides to that. But the question is, if we portray it as a solution, as a way of dealing with your emotions, obviously young people who don't know how to handle their emotions are going to be more prone to thinking, okay, well, I'll give that a go. And suicide, for example, there are strict rules for TV companies and um, programs like Casualty and all that, that sort of thing, which say that, amongst other things, you must not portray suicide as being positive in any way. They are not supposed to show it as something, for example, that helps someone solve a problem or, you know, something that is positive. But we do, don't we, read media stories sometimes which do portray these things in a slightly glamorous way. And all of these apparent coping strategies that teenagers are so prone to are, like the, like the next slide, they are, they, are, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They set themselves up as the solution. And I cannot tell you how much my heart aches for some of the young people I work with because they were trying so hard to get it right and to get through and to cope and to keep going. And what they did was start to do something which at first felt like it was going to help. And in the end, it's just made things a whole lot worse. And did you know that teenagers and young people who start to use methods like self-harm, drinking alcohol, weight control, they are significantly more at risk of developing longer-term emotional problems. These things do not make you feel better. They make things worse. But teenagers are so prone to, to giving them a go because they just feel like they don't know any other way. And one of the things, again, that we do as a church is do a lot of going into schools, talking about positive emotional awareness, positive coping strategies. What are emotions? What do they feel like? How do you identify them? What can you do if you feel like this? How do you handle stress in a positive way? Because you know most of them have no idea. And what's interesting is I teach the same classes to adults in our church, and you know most of them have no idea either. So there is a massive amount of, of, of misunderstanding about emotions and about how they work and what, how to handle them. And if you go on our website, there are some resources talking about that, what emotions are and, and how to deal with them. Another thing that Rob mentioned just briefly, which is linked to the sort of media interest in mental health conditions, is this, this is uh, Stephen Fry on the next slide here. Um, you know, fab guy's written some great stuff um, 
But it's interesting, isn't it? I've just put him up as an illustration. He's not the only one. But there are a lot of celebrities, aren't there, who very publicly talk about their mental health issues. Again, in a good way. I'm not saying that we should brush all this under the carpet. That's not good either. But I would ask this question of, can media interest trigger mental health trends? Do you know in the schools, I am inundated now with kids who self-refer to come and see me to tell me that they think they might be bipolar. Because they've heard about it. And it's, it's almost quite trendy and it's quite comforting as a teenager to think, actually, all this stuff that I'm feeling might be because of that. Do you know how many of them actually are bipolar? I haven't had one yet. But they come in and they're pretty sure that this is the label they put on themselves because it, it's quite trendy. And this can be linked as well with some of the identity trends that young people follow. So you see from the next slide, the sort of thing about emo culture and goth culture which is strongly linked with things like self-harm depression. And I would ask the question, you know, is it actually cool for some teenagers to be unhappy? It's not very trendy to be happy. When I talk to some of the teenagers in my, in my church and that I come across in the school, it, it's more cool to be a bit troubled. And it was when I was a teenager too, but the most I ever did was go off and smoke behind the bike sheds. I didn't have to be really, really struggling emotionally in order to be cool, but some of the young people are caught in this sort of trap of, and this is all about as they start to try and find their identity. Is it easier for them, is it more comforting to find an identity in a mental health problem than it is to actually work through that mental health problem and, and achieve full freedom? Okay, the third thing that I think that is going on in our culture, which is an issue, and it's another huge topic, is the internet and it's a really interesting one in sort of clinical and research worlds at the moment. There's lots of dialogue about what is the, the change in the internet? What effect is that going to have on the current generation, but also the younger one? You know, my daughter's generation. My daughter could use an iPod from the age of about two and a half, three. She used to nick my, uh, my iTouch and play games on it. Now she's got one of her own, you know. But that's this generation. They are using media and digital media practically from the moment they come out. Facebook is a really interesting one that we've just looked at in our church and we're putting together a policy of how on earth we respond to this. You know, it began in 2004 just as a yearbook for uni students, as people will know if they've seen the film about it. If you haven't, I'd recommend it because it's a very good film. By March 2010, there were over 400 million users. So this is a tremendous change in culture. Half of those users actually visit Facebook every single day. So what's the problem with the use of social networking sites like Facebook? I mean, we've got Twitter feed here and stuff. It's all very cool. Um, I, you know, I enjoy using these things as much as the, the kids and the teenagers that I work with. There, I would say there's four problems. And number one is that it just gives an increasingly complex social world to teenagers who, frankly, have enough trouble with the real one. They now have this whole other world. And Rob talked, didn't he, about how there is a temptation to retreat into that world because it's easier than dealing with the real world. So what are the risks of this? I mean, they risk making mistakes. You know, we uh, see so much stuff from teenagers and vulnerable adults where they've put something unwise on Facebook, and we have to try and help them to unwind that. In the schools, they spend hours trying to deal with problems that are linked to Facebook. There is the risk of things like bullying because of the power of those social networks. There is the risk that they have constant contact with their friends. You know, friends are great, but there was a time when the adults in a teenager's life were one of the most dominant influences. Now friends are massively dominant. As an adult, you're lucky if you can get a word in edgeways. I know a mum who Facebooks her daughter to tell her her tea's ready. 
because it's the most effective way of communicating with her. So people are literally constantly in contact with their friends. At the same time, in a weird way, they also risk social isolation. All the studies show that the people who use Facebook the most are actually, a lot of them are the people who struggle with the real world, and they do retreat into this world. The second big issue with, um, still the, with the internet and these social media sites is the risk of fake relationships. Who's to say what's real and what isn't real when you're online? So again, you've got the risk of bullying. Facebook bullying is a huge issue. You've got the risk of abuse, genuinely, because you don't know if the person who you're talking to is actually who they say they are. A whole other world that we now have to teach and train our young people on. There is a, a whole field in psychology looking at the whole issue of how using Facebook and things like that affects the development of your adult identity. And identity problems are something that can be linked with these sites, particularly the ones like Second Life, which give you such a strong identity. One lady, an adult lady says to me, she said, I'm not sure which version of me is real anymore. Is it the one that I am now or the one that I am on the computer? And she said, actually, I think I have more relationships and a better life on the computer, so maybe I should just not bother with the real world anymore. And she was serious. So identity problems are a big issue. Again, there is a risk of real-world isolation for people who get so hooked on using the internet that they start to struggle with getting back into the real world. And, you know, on the internet, you can think about it. You know, if somebody makes a comment to you, you can think about exactly what you say, how you say it back. You can monitor what you said. You can even, on some of these sites, go and delete what you said, and it's almost as though it never happened. But the real world isn't like that, is it? And we can see why young people are drawn to a world which offers them this, this control over their relationships. The next thing is the issue of the breakdown of privacy. And again, there's some really interesting literature now looking at young people's understanding of privacy because of their use of social networking sites. So first of all, just this question of who can see me. And there's, there's lots of statistics of how few people change the privacy settings on Facebook which are hugely complicated, and how much people understand what can and can't be seen. But there's also this question of, do they actually have any private life? You know, um, we're in a generation where almost everything people put on Facebook, and I have seen people who I don't even know because they're friends of friends and they obviously haven't changed their privacy settings, who shared the most intimate details of their life with me, and I've never met them. And I sometimes feel like just sending them a message saying, hello, you've never met me, but do you realize what you've just told me about what exactly you did with who on Friday night? Or your very interesting intimate medical problem, or whatever it is. You'd be amazed what people post on there, young people. And there is a question now which some psychologists are raising, saying, do young people even know what, privacy, what private actually is? Do they put up appropriate boundaries? And we know as psychologists that problems with boundaries leads to problems elsewhere, particularly in friendships and relationships. If we put the next slide up, this is a lady called Susan Greenfield who is a very eminent uh, uh, specialist uh, working, I think she's Professor Susan Greenfield actually, but working in this whole area of neurology and the development of the brain. These are just some of the things she says. She says, as a neuroscientist, I'm aware of how susceptible our brains are to change. Most people spend at least two hours a day in front of a computer. And she's talking about Facebook. She says Facebook will impair people's ability to communicate and build relationships. As someone who knows the brain, this is her conclusion. She says, are we perhaps losing a sense of where we finish and the outside world begins? She's asking this question. 
But she also talks about another interesting issue, and she says this, a difference in the young 21st century mind might be a marked preference for the here and now. The emphasis is on the thrill of the moment. And what she's talking about is how the internet seems to be changing another area of the human brain, which is to do with impulsivity. And impulsivity is linked with an increased risk of lots of things, risk-taking behavior, also things like self-harm, certain emotional problems, certain eating disorders, things like that. It is controlled by the frontal lobes. So it is one of those things that in particular is developing in adolescence. So what happens if we take a bunch of people who are just learning about how to be less impulsive and we give them a world where they get everything now? You know, my daughter wants to download a song from Tangled, her latest obsession. Anybody's kids seen Tangled? My daughter talks about it all the time. And she can go now. She's like, Mommy, download it now. Gone are the days when you had to save up your money and then wait until you could get into town, you know, to, to go to our price. <laughs> yeah? She wants it now. She can have it. She wants to take her eye touch into school to play it to her friends. She's not doing that. <laughs> but so there's a, this is, again, there's a bunch of people asking questions about, are young people going to struggle with learning how to control impulsivity? And the image here is um, from the film 127 Hours. Anybody seen that one? Yeah, a few people. We, and the guy who that happened to, he it was a guy who had a, a fairly, it's fairly well known in the media, had a, uh, an accident whilst out climbing. He admits that he was so impulsive, he just went out there, he didn't tell anyone where he was going. And he nearly died as a result of his impulsivity. He talks about that quite openly in interviews. So what's going to happen to our young people if they don't learn how to control their impulsivity? It's an interesting question. Okay, number four. This is the last thing, and it's a biggie in terms of what our culture is, 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 what impact it's having on young people, and it's the myth of perfection. And the Bible says this in Psalm 119. It says, to all, the psalmist says, to all perfection I see a limit. And then it goes on to say, except for in God. But oh boy, our young people don't believe that. They see perfection all around them, and they are told to aim for it. They should be able to be perfect. They should look perfect, be perfect, act perfectly. This is the pressure that's on them. This is just a, a couple of images. Let me stick the next one up. There's a thing on of um, silly airbrushing. Um, this is, if you look at this lady's thighs, my thighs are not like that. <laughs> Another one on the next slide. Look at this lady's waist. My waist is not like that. My, but, my, but then again, we joke about it, but my daughter, who is five, came to me the other day and said, Mommy, I think I might be fat because my tummy is not like this. And she pulled it all in. She said, this is what your tummy's supposed to look like. She's five. Where on earth has she got that from? Turned out it was a bunch of them had been chatting in school. That's how powerful these images are. That's how much they affect young people. And this does make me really, really cross. Even though the Royal College of Psychiatrists in this country has openly put out something saying that they think that airbrushed images are damaging young minds, people are still allowed to do it. So we sell the illusion of perfection everywhere. This next image is from an article in The Telegraph where this reporter went to get herself airbrushed. According to the article, if anybody's interested, Snappy Snaps now offer an airbrushing service. And for a small fee, they will airbrush your holiday photos. <laughs> but what was so sad about that article, if you're interested, the airbrushed one is the, the one on this side. Um, 
is that even though her article was saying that she thought this was a bad thing, her conclusion was, she said, I'd love to look like that. I wish I did look like that. Do you know what? I love looking human. It's fine that we're not all perfect, that we don't always look perfect. As my daughter said to me when we went to Spain the other day, she said, Mommy, why have you got three tummies? (laughs) I say it's her fault. She grew in there. But, you know, that's normal. It's not normal to look perfect. And in, all joking aside, young people, because their identity is developing, are so vulnerable to this. We put up the next slide. One of the things we know is that there are two crucial things for self-identity and self-image development. There is the sense you have in your head of what you think you are like. But at the same time, we all have a concept in our head of what we think we should be like. And hopefully, for most of us, those two are roughly the same. I mean, we all know, you know, I would like to be a little bit more patient, a little bit less of a control freak, but, eh, you know, what are you going to do? I'm not perfect. It's basically okay. But for young people, very often, if we just click on one more thing, is that there is a massive difference between those things. The image they have in their head of what they think they should be like is totally different to the person that they think they are. And this is a tremendous pressure on them. How is a child of five supposed to cope with the messages coming into her about what she thinks she should be looking like? How is a child of 14 supposed to do that? How do we do that as adults? It's hard enough then. If you are just forming your sense of who you are, this is particularly hard. And it's not just body image. If we put the next slide up, relationships is another classic area where this comes up. You know, the, the, the idea that relationships should all be completely perfect, you know, and then they go off into the sunset together and live happily ever after. My daughter's always saying that when I say, when I turn over the last page of her fairy story, she says, and then they lived happily ever after, mummy. Now, those of us who've been married, I've been married 10 years, uh, how realistic is that an image of married life? <laughs> married life is great. My husband is fabulous, but we've had our moments. <laughs> But the problem is young people are looking for that kind of perfection in the people they're with, with their friendships as well. You know, normal thing of friendship, and one of the great things about friendships is that you can sometimes fall out, fall apart, not see each other for three years, but still come back together because it's like Will was talking about, it's that sense of security that we find in adult relationships. But teenagers feel under such pressure to have perfect relationships. Often they never, they never form any because they're so scared of them not being perfect. Another area that this hits is in emotional development. Teenagers think that you should be able to never, ever be miserable. You know, look at something like friends. And, you know, as I'm getting older, I I talk about friends to teenagers, and now some of them haven't watched it because it finished so long ago. I was talking to a teenager about Back to the Future the other day. Lots of my favorite illustrations come from Back to the Future, and he'd never seen it, so I was just trying to explain it, and I started off by saying, well, it's all set in 1989, and he said, just stop a minute. That's the year I was born. And I thought, oh dear, I'm in trouble. I need new illustrations. But teenagers believe that whatever life throws at you, I should always be happy, always cheerful. That's what their culture teaches them. The reality is normal to sometimes feel lousy, to sometimes be miserable. And again, there's a lot of question over whether we teach people that negative emotions are are something you shouldn't have, whereas in fact they're an important, normal part of adult life. So what do you do if every day is like this image? Every day is just like a rainy day. Put the next slide up. Great. And I think the message from this section, if we put the next slide up as well, is that this is what we're doing to our 
children and our teenagers and our young people is we are expecting them to cope with an adult world way before they are actually adult, way before they have the brains and the development to cope with it in a healthy way. And the good news, because this seminar risks being a bit depressing really, if we put the next slide up, is that one of the many things that youth workers can do is make a fantastic difference. Did you know that one of the most positive, the single most positive predictor for a young person in how well they get through adolescence is whether they have a significant adult role model who is not a parent or a family member who they can go to and talk to and share stuff with. So that's what the youth workers do. That's why we run a mentoring team, because it's so important. And you can get your young people through this stage in their life. We can help them to learn how to respond to things more positively. But it is a challenge. Growing up now is not easy. And I just want to finish just quickly, and then we've got a little bit of time for questions, just with a few little pointers to encourage you if you are trying to communicate to teenagers. Because just stick the next slide up. Sometimes that's not all that easy. So these are just four, just a few quick pointers. Yeah, you... <laughs> yeah, I'm not advising this, by the way. Okay, so number one, if you're talking to teenagers, next slide, please. Avoid the starey-eyed inquisition. <laughs> you know, adults, very often, if they want to have a talk, they get you in, they sit you down right in front of them, they're like, hello, right, we need to chat about this. Teenagers don't like that. It's scary. You're scary. I'm sure that none of you do talk to them like this. So avoid the starey-eyed approach. Do you know the best time to chat to teenagers? Car journeys, they're fantastic because they're not looking at you and you're not looking at them. They're fantastic for that. Sitting down on the steps or just while other stuff is going on, it's so much less scary for them. So choose your moments. Don't try and talk to them in, in the scary inquisition way. They often say to me, that's what teachers do. But I know that that's just because teachers are stuck in that role, really. But for the rest of us, especially if you're a youth worker, it's great. You can be really flexible about how you talk to them. Number two, remember that they are the non-verbal generation. So use it. You know, sometimes texting, emailing, using the internet, you have to be careful. But it can be a powerful way of helping them to communicate. If you have a young person who that's their only way of communicating, and then you expect them to come to you and to talk for an hour about how they're feeling, it's going to be a quiet hour. And I saw a young person once who told me that she had been to see a a psychiatrist. Sorry, Rob, if you'd ever listened to the recording. um, And she'd gone to see him every week for six months. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, he would sit there in silence and I never knew what to say. So we never said anything for six months. So I said, oh, no, that must have been really stressful. She said, yeah. And at the end of the six month, he he got me in and he said, I have a fit, you know, I just feel like this isn't really working. So I said, well, yeah. So what did he do? And she said, he moved me up to two sessions a week. That's not, a, that's not a common experience of psychiatrists, Rob, if you're listening on the tape. But use some other ways of communicating with them. Let's be flexible. Number three, again, I've said this in a way, but just choose your moments. Uh, if we put the next picture up, you know, this is how teenagers sometimes feel. You don't want to become just another person that's nagging them. So be careful how you talk to them and what moment you choose. Remember, there are times when they are much more receptive than others. And um, if you launch in at the time when they've already had a lousy day and they're not feeling terribly receptive, do you know they can block you out? And they will. And then number four, teenagers like noise. Um, This is not news to anybody who has one. 
They play their music loud. They like background noise. The most common problem we have with um, leaders in, our, in my church with communicating with teenagers is that they say, well, I can't hear a word they said because they had their music so loud. <laughs> if you have that problem, then go and put some loud music on and practice. <laughs> Because they like it, it makes them feel less vulnerable, less exposed. Remember, teenage years are sometimes is about feeling very exposed. So background music is a good thing. It helps them to feel more comfortable talking to you. Um, so use it. Okay, that's, that's the last of my four helpful hints of communication to teenagers. I hope that's been in some way helpful. It's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. But just to end on the positive point, let's remember... You know, the transformation that I've seen in some of the young people I've worked with has been amazing. Ultimately, these kids are the future. And they have so much potential locked up within them. So let's unlock some of that. Let's pray for them. Let's help them to be the people that God created them to be. Yeah? Great. Thank you.